Blog Talk Radio. Well, where are the jobs? Well, we have a civil rights attorney coming up who says all the jobs are right here and they're being held by foreigners. That's in hour one. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan in California. I'm co-hosting with my friend and colleague, Chuck Morris. He's in Boston. We're broadcasting here Monday through Friday, 1 p.m. on Cyberstation USA Network and the Blog Talk Radio Network and our radio affiliates. It's February 8, 2012, and we are pushing the boundaries of radio, listening to voices of all sides of the issues of the day. I'm going to introduce you to my friend and colleague, our co-host Chuck Morris, but please be kind to him because he's got a sore throat. How are you, Patrick? Uh, I'm good, and, uh, and my my sympathies for your throat. I know how it feels, and I'm sure you're probably sucking down um, cough drops as fast as you can. Yes. In fact, they've got the great Pine Brothers cough drops have been reissued. Remember them? <laughs> I'll have to get some because you know I'm going to have that throat problem too. It's sort of an inherent problem in, the, in this business. Well, yeah. I see that Rick Santorum um, swept all of the uh, – I guess they were non-elections, really, because I don't think any delegates got awarded. Uh, but no, they did. They, oh, they he did. got delegates in Minnesota and in uh, Colorado, yeah. Oh, good. The okay. only one that was a non-delegate state was uh, Colorado. Or not okay. Colorado, I mean um, I mean Missouri. Okay. I, I haven't quite kept up with, with, with that whole process. I'm not really sure why some states are having elections or caucuses when they don't issue delegates to the winners. It, uh, it seems kind of strange. It is strange. That, yeah, it cost the taxpayers but it was, money. It was only Missouri that did that, and I'm really not sure why, but um, okay. but he did. I mean, he took all three. It's very interesting. Yeah. What Was um, uh, Newt Gingrich in all of those elections against him? He wasn't in Missouri. Uh, he didn't get in the ballot, and he did poorly in the other two. That's, he came in last, I think, or maybe... I mean, I, yeah. I think he can't beat Ron Paul, but Ron Paul doesn't matter. Well, I know he doesn't matter electorally, but he's a lot of fun. He is, but he's not placing anything. I mean, yeah. he's bringing up some important issues, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, well, I, I can imagine the, that uh, Mitt Romney is, and his staff are tearing their hair out right now. <laughs> what is going well, it's on? Well, it, it's very frustrating to watch... Mitt Romney, how you know, in a sense, he had some of the same problems in Massachusetts, in that he's just timid about saying who he really is and what he really thinks on things. He's very. I think that it's been said by um, uh, two Boston Globe reporters that actually wrote just wrote a book about Romney that's very good and very fair. Um, that I've Romney invited one of those to be on the show, Scott Helm. Oh yeah, Scott Hellman. I know him, and he's he's very good and. Uh, you know, definitely good. two guys are definitely liberal, but yet it's a very fair book. It's not an attack piece on Romney at all. And uh, they make the point that Romney has always been somewhat defensive about being a Mormon, that this is, you know, it's a negative, and he doesn't like to talk about it publicly. And he's, it's made him somewhat concerned about getting too into certain issues that, that people don't like. And it really works to his detriment. Because, you know, I think that Romney, and also the fact is, let's face it, Romney really is ultimately a liberal. I mean, he's certainly left of center and always was, and he's, he's trying to obscure that in a campaign 
in the same way that uh, a Democrat would not want to appear to be, uh, you know, too one way or the, you know, he wanted not be, he he wouldn't want to be appear to be too conservative in the primary either. So he's he's just been very reticent to to say much, and he hasn't really given a positive bill of particulars with, with regard to why people should support him. Well, when you say he's he's very liberal, of course, from my perspective, uh, he sure sounds conservative. Uh, but uh, I I think maybe and correct me if I'm wrong, because you you've been on stages with him and he was your governor. The the general story in the press, the narrative about him in in, in the media is that he's whatever you need to be, he needs to be at that point to get your vote. And he's neither liberal nor conservative. He's, uh, he's opportunist. Is, is that an unfair description? No, I think that he's generally somewhat of a, an eastern seaboard liberal Republican who is running in a primary and he wants to appear to be more conservative. He was generally liberal-oriented in Massachusetts as governor. His main critics were on the right. And um, he doesn't want that to be, and that's a problem for him running nationally in a primary, as it would be a problem for a Democrat who is not viewed as sufficiently on the left. I mean, you might remember when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were battling it out, Hillary Clinton took a real drubbing because she once made a positive comment about Ronald Reagan. You know, it's like nobody wants to be seen, you know, they, they don't want to be, that's, that's anathema. So it, it's part of the dynamics of a primary that you you have to appeal to the very base group that, that comes out to vote. And so Romney is sort of trapped in that. Yeah. Well, uh, we, incidentally, we just got an email from a a, a listener who hold, says... Hold on, Patrick. Let's uh, hold the email till after we break for our radio affiliates, and uh, we'll do that real quick. Okay. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Jeff and Patrick here on the Cyberstation USA Radio Network and our affiliates. Stay with us. For our Blog Talk listeners, we have to, to take a quick break while we bring in our, uh, our radio affiliate listeners. Uh, so that gives uh, Lars an opportunity to climb up on the roof and push the, the satellite dishes around um, and then come You're back down. Listening push to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyber Station at USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. If you'd like to take part in our conversation this or any other afternoon, 424-675-6806 is the number to call. But you can also send us an email at any time of the day or night. That's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. But now I'll send it back to our host of the most, Chuck Morris and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Gentlemen, it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Lars. Uh, uh, And I am Patrick O'Heffernan, co-hosting with Chuck Morris. And we are both welcoming our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and KSKQ-FM in Ashland, Oregon. And incidentally, Ashland has the best Shakespeare festival in the country. And Tampa Bay is going to be the site of the Republican National Convention. That's going to be a lot of fun there. I'm co-hosting today's edition of the Fairness Doctrine, as I said, with Chuck Morris. Chuck has a sore throat, so I'm actually uh, um, taking over as co-host today. Uh, We want you to join us. We'd like you to to help me co-host. Fairness Radio at gmail.com. We already have a uh, an email from one of our listeners. I'll read it in just a second. And as uh, as as Lars said, you could call us at uh, 424-675-6806. Well, Chuck, the email that that we got um, said that actually all three elections last night awarded no delegates; that they were all straw polls, and um, sent me a a link to 
election 2012 delegate count, which actually backs that up. But it also points out that Mitt Romney is ahead with 91 delegates, Rick Santorum has 44, Newt has 29, Ron Paul has 8, and John Huntsman is hanging in there with 2, although he's not running any longer. So I guess so. Well, I'm, I'm looking at... I'm looking at something that I think came from CNN and that was posted on the Drudge Report. I don't have it in front of me, but it says that um, Minnesota awarded seven delegates to Santorum hmm. and um, I think one or two to um, to the second runner-up, and the same thing with Colorado, and that it was only Missouri that had no delegates. But I don't know. That's that's only that's what I, I've seen. Yeah, well, uh, we'll, we'll uh, for our uh, listeners who've, who've got their uh, finger on the button on this one, why don't you send us uh, a link real quick uh, uh, clearing that up for us uh, because uh, we would like to make sure that we've got it right here. Uh, but in any case, um, the other uh, big news, of course, is that um, uh, the 9th District Court overturned uh, Proposition 8, the uh, California State Proposition, to uh, uh, – ban uh, same-sex marriage in the state. Uh, that's been overturned, and uh, we'll wait and see what the next step is on that. But there were huge celebrations in San Francisco and West Hollywood uh, last night, um, and we knew it in Well, were you, were you surprised? What? Was I surprised? Were you surprised? I mean, yeah. Um, no, I wasn't, actually. I don't think anybody was. No. Uh, I think it was entirely expected. They're, um, uh, they... There I don't think they should go forward to to the Supreme Court. I hope they don't, because it would nationalize the issue. Uh, they well, probably will, but well, we'll see. That may know, not be a, the case. Uh, and actually, Albert Navarro is going to be on. It's his regular slot tomorrow, and he's uh, he's, he's said that he'll uh, give us a full rundown. Apparently, the uh, the decision was extremely narrowly written, so that it really, really only applies to California. So. They, but nevertheless, they, if it goes to the Supreme Court, it, it will nationalize the issue. I think that's what the people who support this want, and I'm hoping it doesn't. I mean, I'm hoping that it just stays in California, and regardless of what the issue is, I think it's a sad spectacle when you have two people, two appointed judges, overturn the will of the people of California or the people of any state. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, th there's something about that that's... Um, should you know should bring pause and i don't know exactly what their what the california constitution says but generally speaking the states have been free to decide issues of regulating marriage and well, uh, I, you know what as, was the, as you pointed out to me yesterday uh one of the reasons we have a constitution in this country is to prevent the tyranny of the majority and the constitution right. of the state of california specifically says that uh Rights and benefits that are allocated to any citizen have to be allocated to all citizens, and marriage in California has been determined to allocate rights and benefits, and you can't uh, take a class of people and say, sorry, you don't count. So uh, it's the well, majority, that majority rationale, of the majority Patrick, was overturned by the court here. Yeah, using that majority, I suppose you'd have to give rights to everybody for everything. But the fact is that the Pretty state, much, yeah, according that's right. to article, and, according, and that could be on any topic under the sun, According to the Constitution, and, and that would not make sense. That would be tyrannical. I mean, the state can't just simply, you know, do everything for everybody. You know what I mean? That, that's, that's communism. But the fact is that the states, according to Article 10 of the federal Constitution, 
they have generally had the priority of regulating marriage, whether the age of people getting married, the type of marriage, all of it. And it's not, you know, and to do so generally has been something that the people of that state has decided. It's 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 entirely constitutional for that for that to happen. I mean, it's not and, it's a state but, issue, and, it and the, on state, the state constitution, and it, and the, the court found that it violated the state constitution, which is well within the realm of uh, of Article Ten. Yeah, but I'd like to see the reasoning. That's all, Patrick. I mean, I don't know how sound it would be to say that. I mean. You know, when the state has the priority of regulating marriage, I mean, does that mean that children now can get married? Don't they get equal protection also? I mean, it's sort of, in other words, to, to regulate marriage is something that has been the priority of the state and should be. And the way the state of California does these things is through these referenda. They've done it ever since that reformed governor, whose name that keeps escaping my mind, he ran for president in 1920. You know who I mean. Yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah. He well, implemented the, this uh, type the, of the government, and that, and and the referendum. And you've been a big fan of referenda, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I would think not that as that's much something as they used that to be because they've been hijacked by the corporations. Oh, is that so? Which ones? All. Of anyway, them. you know, so <laughs> it depends <laughs> on the corporation. Them. I suppose you're talking about. There's uh, a referenda well, to legalize marijuana now. Um, Enron, um, Exxon Oil, Standard Oil, PG&E, um, uh, separate, separate yeah, and, and does that apply you to all referenda? Have been in there. Then believe me, I deal yeah, with it. Yeah, but that doesn't apply. That, and that's fine. These, these vampire corporations, as, as uh, Dylan Radigan calls them rightfully, but that doesn't apply to referenda like fair election referenda. Well, you know, government um, funding of refer- you know, I mean, there are all well, kinds of referenda. they do, but we have to take a break because we have a guest coming on. So we can continue okay. this afterwards. Well, you're, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Our stations are going to identify themselves, and when we come back, we're going to talk about where all the jobs are, and a civil rights attorney wants to do something about it. Stay tuned. You're listening to Fairness Radio. Hold on one second, guys. Okay. For our blog talk listeners, of course, you get the joy of listening to what goes on in the control room. Nobody else gets to do that, just you. You're special, which is why we try not to say anything we'd be sorry about. (laughs) We always warn our guests that when they come on and are in the holding room that they can hear us. Oh, we've got a lot of emails, people, on uh, how many delegates were awarded by which states. Uh, we'll deal with those uh, after uh, later on in the program. And thank you all for sending us the emails, particularly the ones with the uh, the URLs in them.
tomorrow we're actually going to get into this question about competition with Albert Navarro, our constitutional scholar and expert. Patrick, uh, Jim is with us. Hold on. Okay. We have under 30 seconds. And I'm forwarding you numbers for guests uh, in hour two. And four. The backup numbers. back now. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. If you'd like to take part in our conversation, 424-675-6806 is the number to call. And you can also send us an email any time of the day or night, as many of you already have, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. But now I'll send it back to our host of the most, Chuck Morris, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Gentlemen, it's all yours. Thank you, Lars. Thank you. Well, the issue that will probably and is now dominating the uh, the 212 election is jobs. Where have all the jobs gone? We know that as many as 8 million jobs disappeared uh, from the United States up, up to uh, the election of President Obama, and we're very slowly seeing some growth in private sector jobs uh, up until uh, this month in which we saw 240,000 jobs uh, reappear in the United States in the private sector. But still, unemployment is unacceptably high. It's 8.3% nationally. Real unemployment is probably double that. Some states have at least double that. So exactly where have all the jobs gone? Well, our next guest has a good idea of where all the jobs gone, and he wants to talk about how we can get them back. James Otto is a, is a retired uh, Marine officer. He's a civil rights attorney, and he's filed some very interesting lawsuits. James, welcome to uh, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Good morning. Thanks for uh, inviting me. James, where have the jobs gone? Well, the jobs are still here. They're out there in the U.S. economy on mainland USA, except they're going to imported immigrants, uh, which is very uh, very interesting and odd fact, but um, because of my lawsuit in the case of Beasley versus Molina Healthcare uh, and Cognizant Technologies, I've un- uncovered a lot of government documents which establish uh, their admissible evidence in any court of law, so I, I'll say they establish the fact that uh, the U.S government allows U.S. corporations to import immigrants to take U.S. jobs. Um, In fact, no less authority than Elaine Chao, who was the Secretary of Labor under George Bush, and coincidentally, an interesting fact is that she's also uh, the wife of Mitch McConnell, the uh, minority leader in the Senate. Uh, When she wrote in 2006 as the Secretary of Labor that it was... Um, it was okay for U.S. employers to fire American workers, qualified American workers, and replace them with foreign immigrants. Well, that statement, of course, flies in the face of the Immigration Code and uh, the duty of Congress to protect Americans, but it is, in fact, a reality. 
It is so much a reality today that on December 7, 2011, just a couple months ago, our Secretary of State, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, sent out a press release to the U.S. Embassy in Mumbai, India, that the U.S. would now accept all employment visa applications uh, without limitations under what is now, what is known as the B1 category. B1 is just sort of a general catch-all category, and it has no congressional, uh, congressionally imposed limitations. So, uh, in effect, the State Department says it will accept all immigrant, all, all labor uh, visa applications in an unlimited number. Um, and that allows U.S. employers to bring over immigrants who are supposed to be who will then take U.S. jobs. Uh, we know that's what happens because in January of 2011, the Government Accounting Office issued one of uh, several reports on this issue of employment preference visas, and it outlined, the GAO outlined the scheme, the business scheme used by uh, U.S. employers to bring in immigrants to replace competent employed Americans. And in fact, my clients uh, are the end result of that scheme because having spent many years perfecting their, their talents in their profession and having reached the top of their, the game, so to speak, they then had to train their foreign immigrant replacements brought in by Cognizant and Molina Healthcare for the specific purpose of firing them. But it wasn't just, it's just not my clients who suffer this. Uh, this is happening all across the country. In Pfizer uh, Corporation in Connecticut, they laid off several hundred Americans to be replaced by foreign immigrants. Uh, Nielsen Corporation in Florida did the same thing. In fact, as we speak, it, Xerox in Atlanta, Georgia, is in the process of firing 2,500 uh, Americans to be replaced by Cognizant Technologies, the defendant in my case, and they'll bring in um, only Indians. They focus in strictly on Indians uh, to, to import. And, you know, you just have to look at the, at the public filings to discover all this information. For example, uh, every corporation um, must file uh, or every corporation, I suppose, that's, that's listed on the stock exchange has to file certain filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission, one of which is called the 10-K report that tells the public and the shareholders what is the business model and what are the risks to that business. And, and Cognizant writes that its business is to recruit students from India and import them into the United States to take U.S. jobs that historically the, the, the Cognizant and other people and other corporations such as them would supplement the American workforce, but today it's to replace the American workforce. Well, well let me and, get an, uh, an idea here of the scale of what we're talking about. Um, as we've discussed many times in the show, American jobs have been exported. Uh, they've been replaced by robots. Uh, they've been eliminated by redesign of um, uh, products so that they require fewer people and by pushing off some of the work to the actual customers to actually build things. Now you're saying there's there's another element here and that is uh, foreigners who are imported to take these jobs. How many are we talking about? Is this a, a small amount uh, or are you talking about millions? 
Oh, we're talking about tens of millions. Um, the Department of Homeland Security is the government agency charged with uh, admitting foreign uh, foreign persons into this country. And so the, the department actually counts every single body that enters this country and records the specific reasons why those folks come into this country. And then they publish a yearbook. And so um, you just want, have to take a look at the Department of Homeland Security's 10-year yearbook to realize that, uh, in, for example, the last four years, during the years of our recession, uh, while there were 13 million unemployed Americans, U.S. corporations imported 8.4 million hmm. foreign immigrants to take U.S. jobs. And, and, this, okay, and, and this, these are official statistics? Because I'm looking at the Department of Labor statistic that showed that uh, by, uh, ja by January of 2009, we were losing approximately 800,000 jobs a month, um, and that tapered off until uh, February of uh, 2010 when we started gaining jobs. Uh, are the, uh, the the foreign, the HB1 visa of people, are they included in the employment statistics of the Department of Labor? Do they count them as as working Americans? No, because they're actually under a, what is known as a temporary work uh, program or category. Yeah. But they're not considered as uh, permanent employees, although in effect and in fact they, they end up being permanent. Uh-huh. As they come in under these uh, work preference visas, they're allowed to apply for green cards, and that's why they're a preference, an employment preference visa, because uh, otherwise they'd have to stay in their home country and wait in line to get a green card. But well, because Congress created – go ahead. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Uh, why would an American company go to the expense of finding, transporting, and training a worker from India to replace a person who's already here, speaks the language, knows the customs, knows the job, and doesn't need to be moved. Well, because there's millions of dollars in cost savings there. They don't pay these, these Im imported immigrants uh, more than half of what a U.S. worker uh, makes. In fact, in my case, they make around 25% of what the American makes. They live... These, these immigrants live in poverty. I mean, they can't even afford their own apartments. They have to live six to a room. They share one car amongst themselves. Now, what, what kind of jobs are we talking about here? Are these professional jobs or are they uh, menial jobs? No, strictly professional. The employment pre uh, preference visas require a college education. And, for example, in the H category, that's reserved for the highly skilled specialized occupations. Although, in effect, they don't go to highly skilled people because students, not graduate students, but students who have yet to graduate are recruited uh, under two programs, the PT programs, and uh, U.S. businesses are allowed to give foreign students, not American students, preference hiring so uh, that once they're hired, the foreign student then converts his visa status from student to an H category for a highly skilled, specialized occupation. And, so, you know, we're talking about students, entry-level students. So, so you're saying that a company like, I don't know, pick one, Google or Texas Instruments or Fairchild or whoever, uh, would bring in a 
engineering student from India, have an American engineer train that student in the American engineer's job, fire the American engineer, and then pay the student 25% of what the company used to pay the engineer. Is that what you're saying happens? Correct, yes. And, and this, you're saying this ha- is this happening on a very large scale? Well, uh, again, in between 2007 and 2010, the Department of Homeland Security uh, accumulated all the reasons for allowing foreigners in, and they have a spe- specific line item, which is foreign workers and trainees. And that line item adds up to over 8.4 million foreigners who came in to take U.S. jobs. Um, you compare that to over a 10-year period, and over 15 million uh, workers came in, foreign workers came into the United States to take U.S. jobs. So in the last four years of our recession, or in the last three, three to four years, uh, it's more than you know, doubled. The, the, the rate of our increase in, in the number of imported foreigners has more than doubled during the recession. And and your in your lawsuits and you're suing two companies now, but I anticipate you're going to probably sue others. Uh, you're alleging that they are breaking the law. Is that correct? Yes, they're breaking the law. It's not the immigration law uh, because Congress has created this scheme to allow U.S. corporations to bring in immigrants to replace Americans. I'll tell you that about that in a second, but. Um, under the civil rights laws, both the federal civil rights laws and the state of California right, civil rights laws, it's illegal for an employer to make a decision based on national origin. And so, as I was saying, that these importers of, Ameri- are of immigrants focus in on a single national origin. For example, Cognizant uh, admits in its 10-K report that it only seeks Indians and that the vast majority of its employees in North America uh, are, in fact, Indian nationals, and they'll continue to do that. They have no intention of hiring an American. Well, uh, ITT in in Bangalore turns out very, very good engineers. I I can understand why they would do that, but not if they break the law. Uh, Let me uh, introduce my uh, my co-host, Chuck Morris. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for joining us, James. This is really a sensational story. No, it's an amazing uh, one that I think transcends any one party or administration. It actually goes back to the Immigration Act that was passed in 1965 and sponsored primarily by Senator Ted Kennedy, but it's increased ever since. And I think that given the fact that right now for the past three years, particularly the past two years, we've been in a recession, this is a scandal, and it's one that – should be brought up with regard to what the Obama administration's policies are on this issue. You mentioned that Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, recently put out a memo in Mumbai urging Indians to apply. It is a scandal that uh, Indians coming into the United States as workers aren't paying uh, income tax. They're not paying Social Security tax. Um, I think that after this show, I'm going to send this to all of the Republican candidates and people I know in those campaigns because I hope they bring this up in this campaign. It is a huge issue. My question to you is, uh, what has the Obama administration said about this? I mean, it's particularly egregious, given the fact that for the past three years, we've been in a recession, and apparently they've just continued it. Well, 
you know, the Obama administration appears to favor an increase in uh, importation of immigrants to take jobs. Um, although right. I'm not altogether convinced that President Obama himself is fully aware or apprised of, you know, the magnitude of the pain that it's bringing to the American people. Um, so uh, just recently I could I could email you uh, a letter that was released by Senator Chuck Grassley to the president uh, commenting upon the president's uh, Internet exchange with a wife of a laid-off American worker where he seems to think that there's plenty of jobs out there for for the husband to find <laughs> when, in fact, that's strange. Yeah, that, I, I think I recall that exchange, and it was very disconnected from reality. But I suppose that one way to get the Obama administration's attention would be if you directed your lawsuit at them and uh, brought this up uh, directly. I mean, obviously they facilitated it. They've um, they, they furthered this particular agenda. But I want to ask you a more fundamental question. Why is this happening? Why does our government, Democrat and Republican, are they doing this crazy policy? I mean, this is obviously against everything that any sovereign state is supposed to stand for. They're supposed to protect the workers in their own country. Well, in effect, fact, in fact, the immigration code uh, was created in 1890 to protect American and American jobs, and it did so for about right. 100 years. Uh, and then in the 1980s, a guy named Alan who was the economist to every president from Nixon to George Bush II, uh, came up with a scheme, I suppose, and, and he's very proud of it. He writes about it in his latest book, Age of Turbulence, and he's on uh, the TV talking about it. But his feelings is that the United States Congress should eliminate all uh, immigration quotas to allow the free flow of all workers in the United States to force American middle class to compete with low-wage earners from foreign countries. Well, that gained some steam in 1990 when uh, Congress passed amendments to the Immigration Act and created some 16 employment preference visas. And at the signing of this new law, the President Bush uh, proudly declared that this would dramatically increase the number of immigrants coming into the United States to find employment. And that was, in fact, true, except... It didn't start off very fast because there were certain protections for American workers, such as uh, you know the employer had to search, uh, make a diligent search uh, for qualified Americans in the U.S. before they imported an immigrant. Well, in the late 1990s, uh, in fact, let me tell you, I'm about, the information I'm about to give you comes from testimony in to the judge in the Jack Abrahoff case. You know the influence. Uh -huh. Just real quickly, Jack Aberhoff used to work for a company called Preston Gates. That was a lobbyist firm. Gates sure. is uh, the Gates is, is Bill Gates, the senior, and the son of Bill Gates, the Microsoft founder. Um, and so uh -huh. Aberhoff used to be the lobbyist for, for uh, Microsoft and the Microsoft affiliates. Um, then they started to make – then Aberhoff went to work, you know, in his own special way. And as, as the court records or this witness testified before the judge that um, he estimates that Microsoft and its affiliates paid Congress 
over $100 million to make changes to the immigration code that eliminated the protection for U.S. workers. And, in fact, three Amazing. major uh, amendments were made during the time period when uh, Eberhoff was lobbying on behalf of Microsoft. And, in fact, you know, the records show approximately $80 million. I've been able to verify approximately $80 million to Congress. Well, that's also corroborated by the studies done by a uh, University of California professor, University of California Davis, Professor Norman Matloff, who in 2004 uh, – did a study and quotes prominent members of Congress as saying that they went along with the uh, the employment visa legislation because paying co- finance contributions were too good to turn away. So uh, that's how we got to where we are today. So but, it was the lobbyists uh, who were funneling money because Microsoft not only it, – it's kind of like an inverse of the same scandal where you have Apple and other companies hiring slave labor in China – and undercutting American workers. Now you have them undercutting American workers inside the United States by bringing in cheaper labor. Now, I'm not against the idea of qualified immigrants coming into the United States, especially the, the people who are of means or who, who, have, uh, who, have, who have brains and who have skills. But I'm troubled by legislation that would actually allow them to take jobs literally from Americans and not pay taxes, not pay Social Security taxes. That's obviously unfair. I mean, the fact that this happened, is, it's a sensational thing. It's, it's amazing. I, I really applaud you for doing this work. It should be something that's brought up in this campaign. Patrick? Uh, it really needs oh. Yeah, we're going to go to a break now, and uh, when, when we come back, uh, we've, got some, we've got a lot of emails, so can you sp- uh, stay on uh, the air with us for a, a little longer? Sure, I can. Okay, good. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're talking about jobs and foreign workers taking them. So stay right, stay right here. We'll be right back. For our Blog Talk listeners, we have to take a quick break while our, uh, our terrestrial stations identify themselves. Uh, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. The email address here is uh, Fairness Radio at gmail.com. I have a long list of emails. Apparently those of you who are sitting at, sitting at your offices with your headphones on are very interested in this particular issue. Uh, some of you um, uh, are, are taking some issue. We haven't heard from one of those workers yet. I'm sure we will. But uh, don't forget you can also call 424-675-6806. Just don't tell your boss. And I think we're getting close to coming back on, aren't we, Lars? Ten seconds. I love it. Coming back now, gentlemen. Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the CyberStation USA Radio Network and our affiliate network as well. If you'd like to take part in our conversation, 424-675-6806 is the number to call. You can also send us an email any time of the day or night, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. You can do that 
even if you're at work, and we won't tell your boss. But now I'll send it back to our host, Chuck Morris, and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Gentlemen, it's all yours. Thank you, Lars. Thank you. And you and we are talking with James Otto, who is suing American companies for using uh, immigration law or violating immigration law in order to bring in cheap workers and throw American workers out of work. Um, Joe, uh, uh, James, I wanted to ask you, uh, is this really a partisan issue? Uh, you were talking about um, uh, Congressional Action 2004 that was under the Bush administration. Doesn't this issue just cross party lines? Um, I, I know I dealt with it when I was a professor at Georgia Tech, uh, and when we had a lot of foreign students who were getting J-1 visas. So uh, I don't see this as a partisan issue. I think this is cross party lines. Um, um, it, this is really a case of companies who have taken advantage of rules written for other purposes to reduce costs and shift their and shift their costs to the middle class. Am I right? Am I right on that or wrong on that? I would agree with you. Uh, you know, you, you could track the chronology of events, and a lot of it happened under the Republican administration. But then you look at today for the last four years, and a lot of it's happening under the uh, Obama Democratic administration. And, and you're right, you know, the, the villains here are not the individuals coming into work, but the villains here are the U.S. corporations who have paid Congress to change the law to eliminate protections for American workers and to allow the importation of foreigners to take away jobs from America. So, so the real problem is money in, in, uh, in politics, that uh, corporations are laying off everybody but the congressmen they, uh, they employ. Um, Correct. <laughs> We have, we have Patrick. Can I try, can I just quickly chime in on that? Of course. Please. Um, Go it, ahead. It, it's thank you. I mean, it's not partisan in that it goes back, as I said, to the 1965 Immigration Act, which was sponsored by Kennedy. But it is partisan in that the administration in place right now is the Obama administration, and they can change this. You know, the administration working with Congress sets immigration policy. They haven't done that. The, the, it seems to me that the corporations are doing what, you know, they're, they're operating within the law of the land. Whether or not they're, they're violating a discrimination matter, that's a technicality. But the fact is that the overall practice of what they're doing is the law of the land. And so we only can look at the administration in power, and that has been in power for four years. So it is part whether that uh, well, administration be Democrat or Republican. Well, well, let me ask our, our guest. Uh, are they operating within the law? Isn't, aren't you suing them because they're not? Well, yes. I'm, I'm suing them for violation of federal and state law, so it is an illegal employment uh, uh, practice. So, so this but, is not a technicality. It's a break, it's, it's violation of the law. Yeah, but I think, James, you're going about it the wrong way. You should be suing the government because these are laws that have been in place, you know, however long, but the fact is that this is what the government offers. They offer you know, foreign employees to come in and have American jobs, not pay taxes, not pay Social Security. They offer tax breaks to corporations so that they bring these people in. However it happened, it's the law, and well, James, the government is the government. Well, let me, let me explain how uh, you get a permission to import uh, one of these immigrants. So a U.S. corporation has to decide they're not going to hire Americans. And then they have to file what is known as a labor condition application with the U.S. Secretary of Labor. Now, the Secretary of Labor is supposed to investigate the sworn statements inside that uh, application. But since Elaine Chow, the Secretary has abrogated all responsibility for oversight. Uh, 
You know, mm. so, so even today, they, they don't oversight or, or check on the, the veracity of, of these labor condition applications. Now, the three things that a U.S. employer swears to under oath is, number one, that this immigrant is not going to adversely impact or take away a job from a currently employed, competent American. In my case, we know that's absolutely untrue. They were brought over specifically to, to fire Americans, and I've heard from countless number of, of other people individuals across this country who say the same thing. They were replaced, not supplemented by, but replaced by the immigrant. The second thing that the uh, employer must verify is that they will pay the immigrant uh, the same as the uh, co-employees, you know, comparable wages. Well, that doesn't happen. We know that they're making less, in my case, they're making less than, than 25% of what the Americans were making. And what I've heard from across this country is that they're making maybe around one-third. That's the highest percentage I've heard. And then the third thing is, is that you know, they have searched for um, competent Americans to, but couldn't find any. Now, technically, that requirement was removed um, by an act of, of Congress, but it's still in the labor condition application, and it's still a sworn statement. And we know that that never goes on because people like Cognizant, they don't even want to talk to an American. They don't have recruiters in America. They have all the recruiters overseas. And there are more than just one Cognizant. There are about eight different companies, corporations, major corporations, that have come into the United States, incorporated, so they could call themselves a U.S. employer, but they're so purple. Well, we have an email here from uh, Stanley Broad at um, gmail.com, and he said, uh, when I was a department head, I hired Indian programmers because there were no Americans available to do the kind of programming we do. Relatively simple, cut and paste. All the Americans were overqualified or didn't know programming at all. We had to go to India because that's where the people who knew what we wanted to do could do it. Well, what do you say? Uh, we've we've had other people on this show say that uh, American schools are not producing mid-level technical professionals, that they're either overqualified or underqualified, and here we have a, a, an employer saying that. Is, is this some part of what might be going on here? James? Lars, did we lose James? Patrick, I think we lost our guest. Let's go to a real quick break, and uh, and then we can go grab them again. Okay. For our uh, Blog Talk listeners and all of our listeners, occasionally this happens. And I'm, it's too bad because I'm just now getting to all of the emails here, most of which are fairly um, critical of the government, uh, I might say. So let's hope we get uh, James back. Um, every now and then that does happen. Uh, we uh, we rely on the... Uh, the telephone system, which over which we have no control, so we'll get them right back and we'll continue this. Meanwhile, um, I, I'll read a couple more emails here. Uh, Jim in Boise in Idaho. Boise says, "Oh, there's the music. So we will hold it." called at the L.A. studio. I told him to hang up and call him back. 
I have Jim back. Hold on. Good. Okay. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network. You can give us a call, 424-675-6806 is that number. But you can also send us an email, fairnessradio at gmail.com. I'll send it back to our host, Chuck Morris, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Gentlemen, all yours. Thank you, thank you. And and uh, we're talking with James Otto, who we lost for a moment, but he's back with us. And James, we just, we, we've got a lot of emails here, so I wanted to read a, a couple of them to you. Um, Jim in Boise, Idaho, or Jim in Boise, who says, In Idaho, where I spend a lot of time, the resorts have a large number of staff from Chile and Peru as J-1 status, low-skill jobs. I don't know a single one who has stayed or converted their visas or stayed. Is that, is that something they could have done? And then before you answer that, Stanley Broad at gmail.com writes, I hired Indian programmers because there were no Americans available to do the kind of programming we do. Relatively simple cut-and-paste off-the-shelf programming. Americans were either overqualified or didn't know the programming at all. So we went to India, which is where the qualified people were. You want to comment on those two? Sure. Uh, well, first off, the J-1, uh, any any visa category can be converted uh, if, if the holder you know desires it. For example, we were talking about the F-1 students who uh, get hired by Americans and then convert to to an H-1B. Uh, hiring overqualified Americans are not hiring overqualified Americans instead going overseas. I suppose if that's what you want to do, uh, but don't make any uh, decisions based solely on national origin. I mean, the laws do allow for the importation of foreigners to replace Americans, but I would think that somebody who's uh, overqualified and unemployed in this country is probably a better fit than somebody who has to come in from overseas and doesn't pay taxes. At least, you know, if you put an unemployed American to work, that's one less person on the unemployment list. That's one more person who could pay, you know, his mortgage, who could support his children and family here. True. Uh, we have a, an email here from, from Mike in L.A. who says, the companies don't have to take advantage of existing laws. They've simply bought the laws they're using. Um, and based on what you've said, that seems to be kind of uh, kind of true that um, that congressmen were paid uh, through through uh, campaign donations to write laws that companies could then use to displace American workers. Is is, is that what's going on here? Yes, that uh, seems to be what happened in the, in the 1990s, according to the witness uh, in the Jack Abraham Abrahoff uh, influence peddling. So in, in that case, you can't really sue the government because the, the government. Is operating according to laws. When, when, I, when I say the government, I mean the administration, the, the, the uh, Secretary of Labor, uh, that the Secretary of Labor staff is operating within the law, or are they overlooking violations of the law, as do many agencies these days? Exactly. They're overlooking the, the violations. Uh, the Secretary of Labor, who is supposed to uh, you know, have oversight responsibilities for these labor condition applications, doesn't even bother to look at them. So, uh, you know, you know I, mean, I suppose that you're you're right. You can't sue the government. You can't sue the government. They made these laws and they signed them into law. But you can certainly bring it up as an issue in this campaign. And I'm glad that you're exposing it. Um, you know, it's uh, it's very troubling that these laws were passed. And you know, people who passed them and people who implement them should be held accountable. No, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. 
Uh, we, we have a couple more emails uh, uh, along those lines, and that is uh, uh, th- this is from uh, Janice Borrega. I think I'm saying that right, Janice Borrega at uh, Yahoo.com, and she says that um, I lost my job to another Central Americano. I was working as a computer programmer after having gone through junior college and learning C++ and then uh, new programs, and all of a sudden I was told that I was going to be out and a person from China was going to take my job. What kind of a country are we in? This isn't an immigrant-friendly country. This is a company-friendly country. Whoa, there's one immigrant being replaced by another immigrant. (laughs) Uh, Ever heard of things like that? Oh, absolutely. It happens more frequently than you think. Um, there's uh, actually, you know, talking about Indians. There, there are. There's an Indian lady in New York who who graduated University of uh, uh, New York with a PhD, and then she uh, got a job, and then she was replaced by another immigrant from from India. There's a, a lady uh, from Virginia who who spent years as a uh, computer tech. She finally became nationalized American, and the next thing that happens is she was replaced by an immigrant. So it happens all the time. Well, Ronnie in Seattle says, American companies have a right to hire the best people they want at the wages they can pay. If immigrants will take lower wages to do a great job, then Americans should be willing to take lower wages in order to keep their jobs. This is a phony issue. No, actually, uh, he's half right, okay? Uh, American employers should be allowed to hire people at lower wages uh, or at the, you know, spend the less, as little as you could get away with. But you cannot segregate a group of people out of the labor market, which is what's happening uh, today. You know, the whole basis of, of my lawsuit and another lawsuit in Colorado is that these U.S. corporations segregate Americans out of the labor market and won't even talk to the Americans. You know, there are, there's a university, uh, there's a, a former professor at the University of Chicago uh, who had worked there for 26 years until he was replaced by two immigrants. Uh, it took two to replace, but never mind that. But he has said numerous times that if he had been asked to reduce his salary uh, to keep his job, uh, and especially for retirement purposes, he would have done that gladly. And that's what I hear from, from all Americans who have been fired by, uh, by you know, corporations and replaced by immigrants. Is if they had been given the option of keep your job on a, low, less sa- a lower salary versus no job at all, unemployment, and losing your house, they would, of course, take in the lower salary. And, of course, this um, makes it different, difficult for them to withhold their labor in order to get higher salaries, which, of course, is what the country needs right now is more jobs at higher salaries. But, uh, Chuck? comments on this? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, yeah, I think that uh, corporations and, and people have a right to hire whoever they want, but at the same time, we we have a right to expect as a matter of public policy, policies that would favor American workers, and that, you know, we've talked about tariffs, and we've talked about uh, penalizing foreign, the, the out, outsourcing of labor to foreign countries, and at the same time, I think we could have policies that protect American the labor inside this country. What you're describing, James, are policies that actually tip the playing field in favor of foreign laborers, and that's wrong. We're not talking about uh, you know an equal competition for a job. We're talking about laborers coming in from a foreign country who are given you know who don't pay, have to pay taxes. They don't have to uh, you know they're given preferential treatment. 
it's a it's really a, a, almost a, a a perverse policy. Actually. I just know they do they do they not pay taxes? Is that that the case? That's correct. Yes. Wow. That's a temporary. Yeah. They're considered temporary workers, so they don't pay taxes. And it's, whether or not they pay Social Security taxes depends on whether there's an agreement with the uh, home country to to you know uh, collect taxes on the country on the home country's behalf. Uh, of which we have very few uh, such agreements. The U.S. has agreements, I believe, with England and a couple of other European countries. So, so there's a double saving for the for the company that they they pay them lower wages. They don't have to pay SSI. So they're actually they're taking advantage of the foreign workers too, and they're saving twice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the foreign workers are the, also the second victim in all of this. You know, the foreign workers are forced to work anywhere from 12 to 18 hours a day, seven days a week, and they don't make a dime in overtime. If they ask for overtime, they get sent home. Uh, and so, you know, it's really just slave labor. I mean, that's what it comes down to. They don't make adequate wages, they don't get any benefits, and they have to work overtime without being paid overtime, which, again, is a violation of both federal and state laws. Well, Chuck, I think you're right. Uh, we should we should get to the bottom of, of why, first of all, Congress passes these laws, and secondly, why the administration is not enforcing them. Um, you're right. This is a, a scandal. Yes, it is. And, and why um, the past administrations haven't enforced it. Yeah, but it's but, more egregious now because of the recession. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing when economy, you know, like during Bill Clinton's time when you had the dot-com boom, and you probably needed people coming in, you know, but... In a recession, it, it, it creates an entirely different atmosphere. You know, the government is responsible for dealing with the present situation. Well, Joe, um, James, uh, what, at what stage is your litigation now? Are you in court? Are you negotiating? What kind of relief are you seeking? Uh, where are you? Well, uh, we're in litigation. The complaint's been filed and served, and the, uh, the these big corporations, and make no doubt about it, these, these corporations are huge. They're both $5 billion a year corporations, each one individually. Uh, and Molina, of course, makes all its money. 100% of its revenues come from U.S. taxpayer money. Uh, but uh, putting that aside, what they've done is they've hired these large, large defense firms to, to, to just harass me. You know, harass me because I'm just a you know small little law firm here in Northridge, California. James, I'm afraid I, I hear the music, which means we are out of time. But this has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm very, very happy that you were able to uh, to join us. Well, where can people find Thank out you, more James. about your work? Well, I'm at law. My website is lawofficeofjamesaauto.com, and uh, yeah, please send this on to to all the political candidates, and let's see where they actually stand on this. Okay, we'll do that. Thank you very much, James Otto, and we are very happy to have you. We're going to take a break right now. It's the end of the first hour, but stay tuned. Coming up, we've got a, a pair of people who are going to revolutionize how laws are written in this country, make them simple, so you and I can read them. You're listening to Fairness Radio at with I'm you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick at Blog Talk Radio and CyberStationUSA.com and our terrestrial radio stations. Stay with us. James, still there?
for our Blog Talk listeners. Uh, we're taking a quick break uh, for our stations to identify themselves. They're going to do some commercials. They're actually going to go into a news break. Uh, we don't do news breaks here because we assume that uh, you already know it, right? not just because we're not set up that way. But uh, we'll be back in just a minute. And then coming up, um, we have uh, two more fascinating guests who are uh, on a mission to change the way laws are written in this country, and they're already working on it in various state legislatures. So stay tuned. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. It's actually Patrick because my green screen doesn't work behind me. So I just keep pointing to stuff, and the news stories don't show up behind me. Oh, okay. (laughs) Thirty seconds. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. If you'd like to take part in our conversation, 424-675-6806 is the number. And you can also send us an email any time of the day or night, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. I'll send it back to our host of the most, Chuck Morris. Dr. Patrick, go ahead for Gentlemen, it's all yours. Thank you, Lars. I, I, I think that whatever Chuck has in his throat is, is, is uh, communicable over... Uh, telephone line and uh, microphone, because I'm clearing my throat, too. And I'm Patrick O'Heppernan, the one who's clearing his throat. Um, that I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morse. He's the other person clearing his throat. <laughs> right. And you are listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. It's February 8th, Feb- February 8th, 2012, and we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices of all sides, so we're pushing the envelope here. We broadcast Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 Eastern, on CyberStationUSA.com, on BlogTalkRadio.com, and also our radio affiliates. And we'd love to hear from you. As Lars said, you can email us. Uh, We had a lot of emails in the last hour. We have a couple we couldn't get to, FairnessRadio at gmail.com. Or you can even call in, 424-675-6806. And when it's all over, when the show's over, you can check us out on fairnessradio.com. We've got a whole bunch of new blogs up, so you can read the blogs and comment on it and and um, let us know what you think. Boy, you know, Chuck, I think we both need our apple a day twice today. Yeah, really. I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> I don't think in this case it's acid reflux. I think I just have a head cold. Yeah. Um, but, when, you know. For our, our listeners, what I'm referring to there is one of our sponsors on, on this show is uh, Barton Publishing, which publishes information on how you can take care of your body without using drugs. And uh, we've been talking about their acid reflux cures, which involves an apple a day. I want to check out their, uh, see if they have anything for throats and colds. Or have you done that already, Chuck? Um, I, I don't. I think they have something for the common cold, yeah. I mean, my email today from uh, Joe Barton is, Something is a book that deals with pain management. I think it's very interesting. Um, he has, and these are all again uh, issues that could be investigated from just uh, stuff, you know, food that you buy in the grocery store. It's not. He's not. It's dealing with problems without drugs, basically. Yeah. It's a 
practical advice, and it's good stuff. It's very good stuff. Is, is that pain management to take care of the pain in various parts of your anatomy that I sometimes cause? You might say that, Patrick, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, really. All right, let's not go there. Patrick, I just want to briefly bring up um, yeah, go ahead. The, uh, a response to the issue we were talking about, your opposition to initiatives because they must because they're corporations that are behind them. Yeah, and that would be enough. Not referendums. Referendums. I mean, if you take a look, first of all, this, this is one of those simplistic statements because corporations get behind all sides of an issue. And with regard to the gay marriage idea, they have major corporations behind them, always have. Uh, in New York, in fact, the Koch brothers were behind it, getting that passed in New York State by influencing New York State legislatures. Which side were in they Massachusetts, on? They were on the gay right, gay marriage side okay. is, is the side they were on. In Massachusetts, there was actually a minor scandal when, it, when, when uh, the, uh, I forget the name of the group, but it's a gay rights group. It's, a, it's the biggest one in the state. They were urging all of their members to buy a certain telephone service, and that telephone service was very substantially sponsoring their organization. I'm just bringing this up, Patrick, and I don't have necessarily a problem with that, but I bring it up only to point out that you've got corporations backing all sides of any one issue. And to simply make the rather simplistic statement that you don't back something because corporations are behind it without talking about the specific corporations is just that. It's simplistic and it's too elementary. You know, I would agree with you about what uh, Dylan Radigan calls the vampire industries, and they back both sides, as you know. They're not partisan. They'll, they do whatever they have to do. But there are plenty of corporations that back things for ideological reasons that you or I may agree or disagree with. And well, as well, far as the gay marriage agenda, they have major corporate backing, and they always have, well, going I, back I, I to was, the New York Times. If you'll recall, uh, and that you're correct, um, if you'll recall, Chuck, we were talking specifically about initiatives and referendums in California. And what's happened in California is the initiative process has been hijacked by corporations and by very large organizations and because it, it's a very expensive process. It costs about a dollar to $2.50 to of, uh, a signature to get on the ballot, and then as much as, as uh, $60 million are spent on advertising it. Your common ordinary citizen, who was the original uh, initiator of initiatives and referendums in California, can no longer do this. You need either a very large statewide organization or, more frequently, a corporation. And corporations have backed a majority of the initiatives and well, the referendums in California over about the past 15 years, starting with on. Proposition 20, and we have to hold on because it's time to take a break. It is. Speaking of large organizations, we need to welcome in our radio audience. So when we do that, we'll be right back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Stay with us. For our Blog Talk listeners, we're going to welcome our radio stations in in just a moment. And they're coming out of their news break. I'm waiting for Lars to uh, get all the satellite issues lined up just so. Maybe we can set up a a, uh, a mechanism with a bicycle chain that goes down into the studio. He can just pull the chain and move the disc, disc around. 
And you are listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network. You can reach us anytime, as many of you do, via email at fairnessradio at gmail.com, or you can call us at 424-675-6806. And back to our host with the most, Chuck and Patrick. Take it away, boys. Well, thank you. And my goodness, your voice has changed. Yeah, what happened there, Lars? You sound like a million bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, about to tweak up the volume or something. <laughs> Can you do the same for us? That's great. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, we, we, it's, a, it's a great improvement uh, in the sound quality. I don't know what yeah, you're doing. You know, whatever you're doing, I, I'd like to have a dose of it. Maybe we could coat our throats with it. Um, yeah, you as bet. I was saying, I, I, Chuck, I was referring to the initiative referendum process in specifically and in California specifically. Now, you're talking more broadly about influence. I'm talking broadly, yes. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, yeah, exactly. I'm talking broadly that it's very easy to throw out the word corporation, and it has a pejorative sound to it, certainly from you, but it's the fact is that corporations back all sides of any one issue for both business and ideological reasons. Well, so, now, okay, as far as California is concerned. I, have to, I forgot to uh, welcome our listeners. <clears throat> Uh, I'd like to welcome our new ra- our radio listeners from uh, 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida, and KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in California, co-hosting with Chuck Morse. He's in Boston. We'd love to have you here. You can be here electronically, fairnessradio at gmail.com, or you can call us. You can be here almost physically. Four two four six seven five sixty eight zero six. And if you want more information about us, and also find out what we're writing and what we're thinking, check out our website, fairnessradio.com. That's fairnessradio.com. And uh, do that, of course, after the show today. You'll you'll see uh, blogs, pictures, and opportunities to sign uh, care to petitions that that support causes that you care for. Well, I want to, uh, like I say, I was limiting my, my, uh, my comments to the initiative process. I disagree with you that you find corporations on all sides of issues. Um, I actually don't have any statistical data in front of me. My sense is that you find corporations pretty much on the side of, of issues that corporations are, are interested in for the bottom line. And the reason I say that is because the holders of corporate stock, and I've been at, and I've been at some uh, stock, I've been at uh, stockholders meetings, Yell at corporations when they spend money on things that don't that that don't clearly add to the bottom line. And I know that there are meetings that uh, outside of those stockholders meetings, meetings with the hedge funds operators and the insurance companies who really own their stock, who tell them you're not going to spend our money on these kinds of things. You're going to give it to us in dividends. So, Chuck, I have to disagree. Yeah, they with do you it. On that one. No, they do it, Patrick, and they uh, do it on all sides. Uh, I mean, look, the whole gay marriage issue was started in the boardroom of the New York Times. It was, and that's a corporation. Well, you know, well, there are ideological. Uh, please explain that. That's not a history I'm familiar with. 1998. Oh, was it 199? I think it was 1988-89. According to the late James Pollock, who, um, in in the interest of full disclosure, was a donor uh, was donated substantially to my campaign, and I'm not. I'm certainly happy to say that he's the former owner of the uh, New York of the of the New England Law Review. He sold it, and then he became an author of several books. He talks about in a book that uh, in I think it was 1988 or 89, the New York Times under the new publisher Arthur Sulzberger Jr. had a meeting in their boardroom, and they said we're going to introduce this new issue called gay marriage. 
No one had ever heard of it before that. I mean, you you know that. You had you ever heard of it before 1989? Well, well, yeah, that actually came up in June 28, 1969, after the Stonewall riots in New York, which predated well, sure, by 20 years. Well, sure, but I'm talking years. about, of course, but I'm talking about as a public policy issue, something that would become recognized by the government. I mean, sure, it's been around. I mean, the New York, the Boston Globe ran pictures of two guys getting married on the foot in front of the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in the South End in the 1970s. I mean, that's, but, but nobody, including most gay people, weren't thinking about it as something that they would ask the government to recognize. It was, it was something that sort of came out of the blue. And the New York Times appointed as the point person for promoting this a columnist by the name of, uh, oh, who is this, Anthony Lewis, who actually was covering Boston at the time, and he would introduce the idea with a series of columns over a couple of years period and gradually acclimating people to it. Well, Anthony Lewis is married to the head of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, Margaret Marshall, who wrote right. the deciding decision on gay marriage in this state. Now, those things yeah. are facts, Patrick. Uh, no, I know. They're, they're fact. Uh, well, I want to check on, on the fact that there was a, a, a volitional decision by the, the New York Times okay. to create the issue. Um, or was it a decision check by out the, the, of the Board of the, of the New York Times to look at an issue that was created 20 years earlier and to write a series of columns on it? So I want to check on that fact. I'm going to withhold belief. And again, Patrick, I'm not saying that the idea of, of gay marriage wasn't around, but it was never something that was thought of by the gay community or anyone else as a as kind of a public policy matter. I mean, nobody was calling for the, na the nation to recognize it as a marriage equal to heterosexual marriage. Nobody was, including most gay people. It was more of a kind of a, uh, you know, like a an idea that nobody cared about and nobody minded, whereas gay people would have commitment ceremonies and whatnot. The, the issue became a public policy issue because it was introduced as such by the New York Times. So, I mean, think about that. Did you think of this as a public policy issue before the late 1980s? Well, before the 1980s, I, I wasn't even in the country, so I wasn't thinking about it. I was in Asia. Okay. Well, I, I would contend that nobody was, including most gay people. It just wasn't something that was on the radar screen. It sort of burst well, forth. Well, we're going to have to have somebody from the New York Times to, to speak on that, because as of now, I'm going sure. to withhold uh, uh, agreement until I have that. Okay. And we have to take a break. And I don't mean anything pejorative about it. I'm just recounting how the whole thing came about. Uh, I understand. We have to take a break right now, um, and we should be uh, having a couple of guests come on. Stay with us. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and coming right up is Can We Make Our Laws Simpler? We're going to talk to a couple of people, a Democrat and Republican, who think we can and are working on that. For our blog talk uh, listeners, uh, we are waiting for our guests to call in. We usually call our guests because we like to keep control of, our, of the agenda. Once in a while we have guests who are traveling and they want to stop and call us. Uh, that's the case today. Uh, my producer is uh, uh, busy tracking them down, which happens. But uh, they, hopefully they're going to appear on the board. Uh, what we have in, in front of us, just uh, so, so you can visualize this because I realize you can't see it, 
is there are electronic uh, mixing boards that are used for radio, and they have little buttons that on them that light up when people call in. There's, I'm looking at one of those boards. Our producer, Lars, is looking at another one of those boards. And when somebody calls in, uh, we're given uh, identification on who it is, and we press a button, and voila, they're on the air. You can hear them. So we're looking for that now, but we always get backup numbers. Uh, so you're, for our Block Talk listeners, you're getting a little a, a little view into what goes on in a uh, radio studio. It's not all as smooth as it seems. I think I hear... But Pedro, you just made me seem really mean there. <laughs> are, are you? Uh, I haven't seen them on my board. Are you calling them their cells and check up on them? Yeah. Okay. That's why we like to get those numbers. Hold on, Patrick. For our blog talk listeners, it gets even more complicated when we have two guests because they have to call in from separate phones. So we're looking for two little lights to go up on the board. It's even more complicated when we have somebody calling in from another country because uh, then they have to call. We have uh, we, we operate call call centers. We have one for the United States and one for uh, other countries, and uh, so we have to monitor those too. So Lars does a lot of things in addition to running up and down the stairs and adjusting satellite dishes. <coughs> Tomorrow, Albert Navarro is going to be with us. He's our regular constitutional um, expert. He's on uh, every, every uh, month, uh, and he's also on whenever we need his help. And uh, so you can save up your, your questions about the Constitution. He is going to talk about Proposition 8 tomorrow, what the uh, the 10th District Court decided, whether or not he thinks it's going to Producer, is this – hold on, Patrick. Okay. Jameson? Aha. Uh-huh. I hear the conversation going on in the background. <laughs> I've been in the – and I'm sure Chuck has too – been in the control rooms of um, – Large, uh, major national radio programs. I've been in Larry King's control room. Oh, and, you know, hold on, Patrick. Okay. There are 15 people doing this all at once. Lars, are they coming in through your board? Okay, that's music. That's so we won't hear all the music and yelling and dancing people are not in the control room. I can say I've been in Larry King's control room and there's 15 people in there. You entered. Oops, I did enter. Oh, hold on, better. Are they going to come in through your board? People in there all making things work. But Larry is very exact. One thing that's exactly the first way. And uh, that's when they're a friend of mine. Gentlemen, they are with us. Hold on one second. I'm bringing you back right now. Oh, they're on your board, not mine. Yep, they're here right now, so hold on. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliate networks as well. 
If you'd like to take part in our conversation this or any other afternoon, 424-675-6806 is the number to call. And you can also send us an email anytime of the day or night, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. And I'll send it back to our host at the most, Chef Morris, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Gentlemen, all yours. Thank you, Lars. Uh, Chuck, would you like me to, to introduce? Uh... Would you please, Patrick? Thank you. Okay, all right. I'm for our listeners and our, our guests, too, Chuck has a little bit of a sore throat, so I'm going to try to take some of the burden off of his throat. We have talked in this show many times about the complexity of laws. And, in fact, Chuck and I have even proposed that uh, no law should be longer than 15 pages, 1,500 words, sorry, 1,500 words, and should be comprehensible to a high school civic student. Uh, well, we're going to talk to two gentlemen, one Republican and one Democrat, who are trying to do something about that. <clears throat> Jameson Rounds and Nate Welch are the founders of One Step America, and they're their goal is to see to it that laws cover one topic and that they are accessible by citizens, and they now have a resolution going on in, I believe, the South Dakota legislature. Uh, James and Nate, welcome to Fairness Radio. Would you tell us all about this? Hey, thanks, guys. Um, and Nate, I guess I'll just start. Okay. Right. Uh, and, uh, because our audience can't see you, uh, initially could you uh, identify yourself so they can uh, associate your voice with, with your name? This is Jameson Rounds, and uh, I'm a, a one of the things in life. I was a government teacher, and actually believe that uh, politics is not merely the art of winning, but it's the practical art of doing the common good. And uh, as naive as that may sound, I, I, I come from a place in a state called South Dakota where, honest to God, it actually really does work that way most of the time. And uh, it ain't perfect, but uh, it seems to work. And, and one of the the things that we decided to do was um, I discovered that not everybody always agrees with, with everything their party does, and not everybody agrees with everything uh, they do themselves, frankly. Uh, so, you know, how do you begin the process of finding something you agree on uh, and find out what's right and what's wrong and, and, and decide on, on really anything? So you have to have the opportunity to pick something you agree on, move forward, do it, move forward, and, and do the next thing. Well, one of the things we have in our constitution in the state of South Dakota is a provision that says no law shall embrace more than one subject which shall be expressed in its title. It's very simple. Uh, it doesn't solve all of our problems, and, and people find ways to try to get around it, but it focuses the issue. And in my quest uh, to uh, try to help return politics to the practical art of doing the common good, I realize that this is not something that is about me. Uh, it really has to be involved with with other folks, and uh, I have a, a colleague, Nate Welch, who I'll uh, come on here in a second, and uh, Nate uh, is a Democrat. I happen to be a Republican, and yet we agree on a lot of things, and we found we can really work together on things, and he liked the concept and uh, decided to join with us, and we formed uh, the group One Step America, whose, whose actual purpose is truly to restore politics to the practical art of doing the common good, and we take one small step at a time. We don't try to conquer the world. We realize that no huge changes are going to happen. It's not a revolution. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's just a step. And uh, this happened to be the first step we agree on. Nate. Yeah, uh, great points, Jamie. Again, this is Nate Welch. Um, one of the things when when we were creating this, you know, Jamie had approached me, and we we had been became friends a couple of years prior, and of course knew that we we came from different different aisles. We saw a lot of things different than one another. 
we were always very cordial and very respectful when we spoke to each other and we heard each other out on why we thought a certain way. And we found that as we continued to discuss those ideas, as long as we were being respectful to one another, we were at least open to it. And sometimes we even changed each other's mind on both of on, on just different subjects. And as we were starting to try and figure out how could we get this idea, this one amendment, into the Constitution, we realized that it, the bigger picture was to be able to help each other recognize that we all have differences and we all have reasons to disagree. But if we focus on the things that we agree on first, by the time we get to the things that we disagree on, we can either A, have a better civil conversation that could help us to get to the practical art of doing the common good, which is what I think everyone wants to do, or we could at least respect each other by the end of it. And we could at least get some other things done if we concentrate on those things that we agree on and those things that we do one thing at a time. That's where the name One Step America came from. That's where the concentration of trying to put in that one amendment. As Jamie said, it's perfect. It's, it, or as Jamie said, it's not perfect. I mean, the, it's a great point to say that it is not perfect. It's not going to fix everything, but it at least gives us an opportunity for us to be able to concentrate on everything. And one of the things that I love about this is it does not take away the validity of any uh, subject, anything that is important to anybody. It just allows us to be able to know and understand what people are voting on and know and understand why they're voting on it if they're focusing on just that one thing. A lot of times, you know, as, as it happens, when people are talking politics, their eyes glaze over because we're either just tired of hearing people bicker, we're tired of hearing people go on rant, and we're, we're tired of, of having someone explain that they voted against the bill because of all of these other, you know, small things. And I'd be willing to bet, guys, you know, I, I think you have a great point that, you know, some bills would, you know, could be shortened. They probably would be shortened if we weren't adding in so many things that didn't have to do with that subject. Uh, Chuck, do you want to carry on? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm pleased with the work you guys are doing. Patrick and I have talked about uh, bills that would be written in a language that's decipherable to all of us, you know, instead of a lot of this um, nonsense. Usually a lot of the um, technical language is put in there to keep things mysterious, and it's not necessary. And also I think that if we had bills that simply spoke a simple language, it would get rid of a lot of the problems around lobbyists. I mean, Patrick and I interviewed Jack Abramoff, for example, a while back, and he explained to us how lobbyists get stuff put into bills. Um, they can put in a little tiny clause called, you know, Section C3 goes to Section B5, which is a reference to Subsection 5.2. And they throw that into a bill. Nobody sees it. Nobody knows what the heck it means. But what, it's, what we find out is it's going to cost us a billion dollars, I mean, you know, down the road. And if bills were written in simple language, then both sides of the aisle, both Democrats and Republicans, would not be bought off by lobbyists representing various vampire industries. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, what, you know, one thing that we always uh, we came to realize was, you know, it, uh, again, it, it, uh, if something is worth, you know, our, our United States government to really take attention to it, that is a great point, whether it, it may be concentrating on one specific thing or spending $1,000 to a $1 billion, but it does need to be debated. It does need to be brought up as opposed to just, you know, slid in under, uh, you know, something that has nothing to do with it. It, it has to uh, allow it to be debated so that the idea can be out there 
and, and we can really make a decision whether or not this is something that, that should be made into law. And, you know, one thing that... Right, I'm and it's become... I'm sorry. Jameson Rounds. Jameson Rounds speaking. The, the, if, yeah. One thing that happens, we like to bash Congress. Everyone likes to, to bash Congress. They, they seem to be, you know, the, the favorite whipping boy right now. But one of the problems is actually the system and, and the process. And in, in one way, we need to give Congress at least the opportunity to discuss one thing at a time. The, the reality of it is is that you know, if, if we have to agree on everything, which is what happens right now with the legislation, we have to agree on everything to do anything, we're going to achieve nothing. And that's an, an incredibly you know, uh, important thing to remember is that every bill can now be tied into every other thing out there. And if you're ideologically apart on something, now in order to make one step forward to help solve any problem, you have to agree with us on everything. Well, that's just at some point it gets to be ludicrous because I don't agree with everybody on everything. My wife doesn't agree with me on everything. I don't agree with my party on everything. But um, uh, there are definitely certain things we agree on and this gives, literally would give uh, Congress the opportunity to start focusing the issues. Again, it's that one step. And then they can look at another step, by the way, which I like your step, those, those limits of, of words. I, I like limits of actually volume. I would say no more than, you know, eight inches of books can be used <laughs> or something like that. So a little bit more. Right, uh, and, and uh, that the law could be posted on a website and debated by high school civics classes. You know, I mean, an example, I mean, we, we could go into many, and, uh, of, of, of how this works is uh, the health care legislation uh, and how brazen Congress has become and the president on these things when Nancy Pelosi, in answer to a, qu a question by a reporter, said, you'll have to pass it in order to find out what's in it. And it was something like, I don't know, 800, 900 pages. We find out a year later that what's in it is a mandate for Catholic hospitals to cover chemical abortions and sterilizations. But the issue also, the, one of the suggestions I would make to address the problem besides the amendment that you guys are sponsoring would be to have a law passed, maybe by amendment or maybe by simple congressional law, that would give the President of the United States a line-item veto. Go ahead. What say uh, you? Yep. No, go ahead, Jamie. Yeah, you know, and it's one of those things where people might disagree on that one. And, and, and I'm, I personally, we, we've benefited from line item vetoes in South Dakota. I think they have a great, a great use personally. But um, that might, but that's not something, for instance, that that uh, at this stage, for one step, uh, I would I would move on simply because we haven't got to that step yet. <laughs> We're trying to right. have our world. We're trying to stick close to what this one little step. Um, and then take the next step at a time and, and agree on it and make sure that we have people on the other side agreeing with us on it. Uh, on it. But personally, uh, as an individual, I've, I've always been a fan of that because it, 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 it restricts things. It can be abused, and it has been abused before, even in, even in a wonderful little state like I live in. But, um, you know, it has its definite advantages. Well, sure, and I would think that that could be a first step and that it, what it does is it means that when the president gets a bill on his desk, Rather than just sign it, he has to take responsibility for every little item in it by either signing each item or not or vetoing each item one at a time. Uh, and in a sense, it, it's a much more constitutional idea because the president is supposed to either sign or veto specific bills, and by doing a line-item veto, that's exactly what the president would do. 
and the president would be held accountable publicly for the bills that he signs and vetoes. I mean, it would be it would put a break on both the president and Congress. Yeah. Well, and I want to come back a little bit to to the the one step uh, the one step project here, um, and kind of let sure. you know how how we intend to take our steps forward because. Uh, so far, we've had really incredible response. We're, we're doing this at, you know, this is on my lunch hour right now, and we're doing it at night and, you know, doing it early morning, uh, and we're really trying to make a, a, it's been become truly a grassroots. We thought about it a year or so ago. Well, a year and a half ago, we, we started doing it as individuals. Last summer, we incorporated it as a nonprofit. And this fall, we, we, we started looking at, you know, what are our options, and we, we wound up with um, a small, what I call a kitchen cabinet of, of folks we did a focus group with, and, and the support, we said, you know, should we continue on with this, folks, or, or should we just let this go and, and, and not worry about it? And, and the response was, you know, a unanimous, not only yes, but heck yes, please do this. It's, 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 we need mm-hmm. it right now in America. It's a chance to do something for our kids. It's a chance to make a difference where, we're, where you know, our, our goal, we realize we have to do, we have to get a, a, an amendment introduced in the, the House and the Senate at the United States level, and then it has to be approved by a two-thirds majority, and then it has to come back and be approved by three-fourths of the states. Now, um, that's, right. a, that's a pretty daunting challenge, but we think sure. it can be done because we, we run across so many people that have really been enthusiastic about it, but the problem we run into with this organization is, is that we're not granting somebody access we're not giving somebody. Uh, uh, there's no quid pro quo. There's no real, real, real. Um, my, if my company does this, I'll get this back. So we're we're out in a process where we have to start this literally from nothing, take one baby step at a time. And, and we've been having some great progress, but we're, we're trying to move it forward. We hope by um, one of our people on this committee happened to be a legislator, and he said, you know, let me introduce a concurrent resolution, and then maybe we can take it to other states. And so that's where we're at right now. Is we, we're, we're, we, it looks mm-hmm. like we will have this concurrent resolution introduced within the next day or two in the South Dakota legislature. We have a draft done. looks like the sponsors are getting uh, gathered up. We're really excited because it's not binding legislation, but it sends right. a message. And we're hoping then that, that will start getting people looking at, you know, we're, you know, we're like everybody else, right? We're, we're, we're on Facebook. We're trying to get it. Uh, we think that we could probably do this, and you know, <coughs> we're going to try to get people to be part of a new 1%, you might say, 1% of the voting Americans who give a darn enough to support us. And if they do, if they yeah. give it, look at like 20 bucks. Uh, well, I think that, that I think that I'm speaking for myself, there. and I'm sure, Patrick, you can you can concur. I mean, I'm behind you guys 100%, and I really applaud what you're doing. Patrick? Uh, I am too, but I, I, I want to know... Uh, how have your your constituents responded to this? We actually have an email here from somebody asking that question, and and I would add to that question: Who's opposed to it? That, well, you know that's a, go ahead. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Jamie, and jump in on this one. But you know that that's kind of it's an it's an interesting and great question. When we when we talk with people, uh. We, I, I personally, and I don't know if Jamie has even, where we've ran into anybody who says that either that's not a good idea. The closest we've ever come to any opposition of it is, you know, a couple of our, you know, a couple um, uh, on the congressional level of leadership where we have asked them what do they think of it. They, of course, have given us the answer, this is a great idea. I don't know if it would ever work. So 
So one of the arguments could be maybe just that logistically it might not be possible. But if that's one of the arguments, say, you know, that's a good that's a good one to take. Um, J Jamie, would you even you know yeah. uh, want to talk a little bit about some of the research that was also done prior? Yeah, I can tell you a couple things. First off, where we've run into what I would call opposition is is is, is rare. I think I can only think of two kinds. You're fading, Jamie. Could you speak up a bit? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, uh, where we've run into what I would call opposition is, is actually really only, I've only had two of all the conversations I've had that seem to indicate that there's opposition. One was uh, uh, someone who said, well, I'll never get my legislation passed that way. <laughs> and, and, you know, they were, being, they were being honest. They said, we, we like this because this gets some funding for us. Uh, the, the other, though, is just that it's, it's not practical or it's fine or they'll just abuse it anyways. The, the, the biggest opposition is is that um, from, from people I've talked with. Now, I'm going to go into some outside opposition in a second that I, that I haven't had conversations about that some research has indicated. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the people I've talked with, was, or, or just frankly, apathy. It's nice, but, you know, what do I do about it? You know, how, how, do we, how do we do this? Or, you know, there's, there's no big movement. It's not, it's, I, I can't go hang out outside a building and, 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 and cheer and raw about this. This is, this is just a good government policy, and it's not always sexy. Yeah. Um, so, um, but the, 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 where, where we do see some opposition, or where, where at least the, the, the research has indicated some opposition, is that um, when you have to determine what is one subject, um, sometimes obviously the courts get involved, uh, and, and people get angry that legislation does get overturned on the one subject, one bill, uh, uh, um, uh, in court cases uh, on that issue. Now, uh, the response to that, of course, is, is, well, we don't get mad at the First Amendment because it generates litigation. Um, in fact, we, we use litigation to protect our rights through the First Amendment. Um, and, um, you know, and that would be where the primary um, uh, opposition, at least externally that I've read about, is, is that they're scared that it gives more power to the courts to overturn legislation. My answer to that is, is that that may very well be true, but that's how we protect all our rights, for good or for ill. That's the best system we have. So let's take this step, and then we, we move on and... and We'll eventually get people focused on one, one bill, um, one one subject, one law, one subject. Uh, that's well, what I found. There is a, there is some research out there saying that you know some people don't like it for that reason, but we we haven't anecdotally or personally. Uh, Chuck, uh, we're coming up on a break. I wonder if uh, these two gentlemen could stay with us for a few minutes afterwards. Yeah, I mean we have to take a brief break. We'll be right back. Please stay tuned. Fairness Radio. We'll be back. For our blog talk listeners, we're taking a break for our Trester radio stations to identify themselves. We'll identify ourselves. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And we're talking about One Step America, an effort to make our laws more simple and easily understood by making sure they only concern one topic at a time. We're talking to the founders of One Step America, uh, Jamie Rounds and Nate Welch. Uh, they're in South Dakota. But uh, we can hear from you wherever you are. We've gotten uh, some emails from you with questions on, on this. And uh, and actually, I've gotten an email in uh, from a listener. I'm not sure Blog Talk uh, listener or not, but who uh, pointed out that there already has been some litigation, not over uh, legislation, but over a, um, um, a ballot initiative in Colorado, which was taken off the ballot and rewritten because it tried to cover too many things. So when we get back on the air, we'll ask our guests about that, too. And uh, 
In the meantime, uh, just to remind you that tomorrow Albert Navarro, our constitutional expert, is going to be with him with, with us. And in hour two tomorrow, Chris Kirkham, who is uh, one of the best investigative reporters on the staff of the Huffington Post, not an independent, he's a staff member, and he's got a series out on what's going on with for-profit colleges. It's not nice, so you'll want to hear that, particularly if you're thinking of going to a for-profit college. There's some things you need to know and the pitfalls you need to look out for. So that's tomorrow. And I think we're about ready to go back. Is that right, Lars? Ten seconds. Always ten seconds. Come back now, gentlemen. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. If you'd like to take part in our conversation, 424-675-6806 is that number. But you can also send us an email any time of the day or night, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. And now I'll send it back to our host, Chuck Morris, and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Gentlemen, it's all yours. Chuck, take it away. Thank you, Lars. Jamie Rounds is our guest, along with Nate Welsh. Um, we're talking about a resolution before the South Dakota legislature to simplify legislation and perhaps go national with that uh, resolution. Patrick, you wanted to make a point. Uh, yeah, there, there, we got an email from somebody who pointed out that there was a, an initiative recently in Colorado which was pulled back by the courts and uh, and given back to the uh, the authors of the initiative to rewrite because it tried to cover too many topics in one initiative. And if I recall, that's also the law in California, at least for initiatives, that they can only cover one topic. Now, I don't think we have that in our legislature, but it does bring up the, the question that um, – how is how are we going to decide what's one topic and who gets to decide and is that going to be a a, a difficult uh, decision to make? Is it going to be a point of litigation? Uh, uh, oh no, go go ahead, Jamie, and I'll jump in. Um, the answer is uh, that that is a difficult topic. It's more difficult with 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 resolutions than or with referendums or or in initiatives where the public can draft whatever they want and, and put it in without having really any any review ahead of time. Um, and but with with the legislatures, usually it's the legislature that determines it. Is it germane, the speaker or or the the, the president? It depends on the state. Um, Nate, you wanted to comment on the numbers of states that have a similar provision. Well, yeah, and uh, I think, Chuck, you had mentioned, you know, that um, it was out in Colorado and, and also California has it, and, and that's, a, that's a great point to mention is actually 43 states have what, what you would call a single-subject law in their constitution. You know, it doesn't maybe state the exact same way that South Dakota does, which is, which is where we got the language specifically. What, uh, what we're suggesting, suggesting it says no law shall embrace more than one subject which shall be expressed in its title, but there's 43 states in the country that do have single-subject laws, and, and the seven that don't are up in the northeast part of the country, and then far down is North Carolina. So the, the good part is we really do have a process throughout our country where the three-quarters of the states know how to at least handle that. Um, and and when, when it does come up, as Jamie said, uh, the legislator uh, writing it, um, someone looking at that, that's when they can at least bring up the question. But it also it, it allows us to be able to have a starting point of saying, 
this is where we're going to start off. We're only going to aim for one subject. If someone catches it where we do have more than one subject, let's discuss that, let's separate it if we need to, and then we'll move forward. I think Nate brings up a good point there. Is, is that, for instance, in South Dakota, the, 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 the operative word is, is it germane to the topic? And, and that's determined by the legislature itself. But what's wonderful about it, and, and as imperfect as it is, remember we call this one step because we know it isn't perfect. But again, it's that one step. The, the thing about it is, is it focuses the discussion and it makes people pause before they throw everything in the kitchen sink into legislation. It makes them really evaluate. Can this stand on its own? Does it stand on its own merit? If it does stand on its own merit, then let it stand. It doesn't have to be hidden and stuck in behind and, 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 and stuck in legislation and hidden where it, won't, where it can't be. If people think you're sneaking something in, you know you're going to get dinged later on. So it, it kind of has this wonderful check. Even if that term can't be perfectly defined, and I don't know if many in the legal world that ever are perfectly defined, even if it can't be perfectly defined, it at least has the effect we want when the legislator drafts the bill. And that's what we're looking for. Are, are you getting... You know, I, would um, call, uh, go ahead. I think it was back in the, uh, maybe about five or so, or so years ago, there was, a, there was a congressman from Arizona whose name escapes me. I, I remember being a conservative who proposed legislation in Congress that would set up a committee to make sure that all bills discussed and debated in Congress rose to a certain litmus test with regard to their constitutionality and that anything that did not rise to that litmus test would not be discussed. Now, I don't know if that's somewhat, that might be a little too severe in this day and age, but it was an interesting thing to ponder. It is, it is interesting. And every state, by the way, has different tests. Or the states all have different tests on how this would work. What happens at the national level might change. But, again, I think we just come back to the point of, is, you know, well, we've spoken with some folks that deal with federal legislation a lot and, and, and literally at times see desperation in their eyes happening at the national level mm -hmm. and almost a plea for help. And I think this is, you know, you, you don't stop. Uh, with any type of, you know, if you're, if you're addicted to bad legislation, you don't stop and get off bad legislation all at once. You've got to take your steps. And this is, again, we're just trying to move for one step, keep it going, and, and then once we achieve it, it's achievable, we'll move to the next step. Yep, yep, it's a, it's a great uh, movement. Chuck, we're, we we're looking at a 45 break. Do you want to push it and keep going? Yeah, I guess, no, I guess we should probably go to a break. Uh, gentlemen, could you let us know where we can get access to your information? And we hope to have you back to continue to keep up to date and keep us posted on what you're doing. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead, you bet. You bet. Um, go ahead, Nate. We're, sure. The uh, best place to go, onestepamerica.com. Spell it all out. Spell the word one out. Great. Onestepamerica.com. Yep. Check that out. Okay, There's, Jamie um, and Nate, thanks so much for joining here. us. Yep. Thank you. Thank we'll you. do it again soon. Thank you. All right, take care. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We'll be right back. For our Blog Talk listeners, make sure you get that uh, that address. That's www.onestepamerica, all one word, dot com, and that's where you can find out uh, how the, this, this particular piece of legislation or that's a concurrent uh, resolution is making its way to the South Dakota legislature and if it's possible to nationalize it and particularly apply it to Congress. That's going to be uh, an interesting process. So 
That's www.onestepamerica.com. And you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And we are going to be back in a minute or so. We have a few minutes left. Uh, we've got a few. We've got some emails from you all too. So maybe we'll discuss the emails. Most of them are very, very uh, positive. You'd all like to see uh, one topic. <laughs> And we've got some good suggestions on how that how that can be uh, how that can be done and how citizens can get more access to legislation. So we'll be right back. Hold on one second, gentlemen. I'm bringing it back right now. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyberstation USA Radio Network and our affiliate network as well. If you'd like to take part in a conversation, 424-675-6806 is the number to call. And you can also send us an email any time of the day or night, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. But now I'll send it back to our host, Chuck Morris, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Gentlemen, it's all yours. Take it away, Chuck. Thank you, Lars. Patrick, why don't we go right to the emails? Okay. Um, um, Stephen Lauterbach of uh, Palo Alto writes, they're on to something. The next step after this should be put all laws online so all citizens can read them and comment on them before they're introduced. Well, I, mean, I, I kind of agree with that. I don't know about before they're introduced, but I think at least while they're being debated or certainly, you know, before, you know, at some point in the process, they should be online. We should, and, and as I said, they could be debated in the high school civics classes. You know, well, I mean, actually, it would get they, people. They, they are online now. Um, there are various places where you can get them, and I think you're right. They couldn't be done before they're introduced because at that point there's, there's still staff memos and things like that. But, uh, the, but you know, you're, if it was simple, if it was just one topic, rather than going online and getting this, uh, you know, 50 pages that you have to search through with keywords to find out what the heck it's all about, it, it you would know, be Patrick, a lot of... There's a Shakespearean quote. I'm not sure. I think it's from Hamlet. It's, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. <laughs> and I think what's meant there is that uh, this kind of tangled language is meant deliberately to deceive. When you see you know, bills that are 800 pages, that's a, that's, a, you know, that's a deliberate attempt by Congress to keep something mysterious. You know, it, it, it happens in the legal profession. In a sense, it's almost a proprietary thing when you get into certain professions, like the legal profession, particularly the legal and the medical professions. They almost have their own language, and I think that they do that to try to mystify and magnify things that actually would make a lot of sense if you actually understood them. And it's a way of protecting their own little industries. I mean, it's a... You know, a, a, you know, the law should be claim, should be plain, but if it was very plain and easy to decipher, people wouldn't need lawyers as much. Well, and that's, that's true. certainly true in economy. I mean, yeah, if that, you take a look true. at economics, it's uh, so deliberately mangled and jargoned that they've taken what really actually is a very interesting and fascinating s- subject and they've created this veil of mystery over it. And, you know, it's, it's, there's no reason for that. Any laws that are debated in this country should be able to be understood by a high school student. The U.S. Constitution is like that. It's very clear. It could be read in, in one sitting by any teenager and understood. Well, and yet well, I, the laws are so convoluted. 
I yep. agree with that. Uh, I wanted to let our listeners know that if they wanted to to, to look at laws, uh, they can go to www.lawsonline.com, and if they want to follow bills, that's done at uh, www.thomas.loc.gov, and then you can go to uh, various places on Thomas and get your bills. Also, you can go to um, congressional the congressional committees now have websites in which they post the laws. But as Chuck says. Even that doesn't help because there are, first of all, the laws are very complex. They are written in technical language, and I agree with you, Chuck, that a lot of that technical language is totally unnecessary. They are written to deceive. That is definitely true. Jack Abramoff told us that. And also there's there's various um, iterations of a bill, so you have to know whether or not you're looking at the the latest iteration of the House bill or is it the iteration that came out of the the Senate committee or da-da-da-da. So, the very structure of Congress makes it very difficult. Now, as, as far as technical language, um, you're, you're right. Technical language does obscure much of what organ, uh, industries like medicine and law do. There is some reason for technical language in that when you're inside of one of those businesses, and I was inside of you know academia, and we use technical language there, it's a way to talk uh, among people in there uh, who in in that particular technology who know exactly what they're talking about they know what those phrases mean and it's an it it's an economy and it's also a precision that you may not get in uh, regular English but when you're dealing with the public um, I, I I agree with you that we should we should as much as possible not use terms of art not use technical language and use use language that the, that a high school civics class can understand and the, most of the stuff you deal with in, in legislation. There's no reason why a high school civics class can't understand it. So uh, I agree very much with with that emailer. Another emailer here says, <laughs> I'm sure you'll love this, Chuck, that mm. the reason laws are so difficult to read is they're written by lawyers. Maybe we should just uh, forbid lawyers from ever running for Congress. <laughs> I'm not well, sure that can't would be do constitutional. That, huh? No. Uh, that, that would be silly, but but look, I mean, the uh, tech, I can tell you that um, that you know, speaking of the Thomas website, which is published, of course, by Congress. When I ran for Congress, and I'm not the only one, there were a couple of other people, I believe, who did this as well. I looked up the record of my opponent at the Thomas website, and they had a full record, all there, of every single bill that he had sponsored and how he voted. And it was a gold mine of information. Well, guess what? Thomas took that off. I think they because did? people really? like me, oh yeah, you can't get that anymore. Because uh, people like me and others were using the information, and, and members of Congress told them to take it off. For so you know, there's a there's. Well, well, I'm on Thomas right now, and it does it does allow you to browse bills by a legislator. But no, what they used to have though, Patrick, was you could go to one page which would give you the full record of each and every legislator, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a, in order of, you know, from the time they entered Congress up to the present and what they, what, they were, what they had sponsored and what they had authored. They don't do that anymore. Maybe they're doing it right now. Maybe it's come back. I, I don't think so, though. Well, it, it was very it, easy for not, me to... It's not very accessible. You, uh, I just did it. That's right. It got very uh, difficult. It's, you get seven laws at a time. You have to scroll through and then then hit another page, and so it's not easy to exactly. look at it. It's there, but it's not easy. It, it, it's impossible to put it all together in one simple page. And I mean, that's how I found out about the Frank Amendment. 
And I'm not the only one. There were several other people, I think, that ran that year that was using that page, and they were saying, gee, look at how many times my opponent did this, that, or the other thing. And I think that congressmen complained about it, and well, so they took it off. Well, we, we don't know. I mean, that's my did, suspicion. But, no, but all I know is you can't. Decision. We don't know that there was a complaint, but, but I can tell you that it's much more complicated now. Well, all I know is that on one day you could do it, and then the next day you could no longer do it. Yeah. And it made it difficult to get to information that should be public. The, Thomas should be making that information as easy to access as possible. And the Congress doesn't want that. Well, You know, the incumbents we, we, don't want you to again, see. Again, Chuck, we don't know that there was a request to Thomas to do that from Congress. No, I didn't say there was. Oh, okay. I'm, it's just I'm, I'm speculating that deep, and not just me, but people in the media were looking at it. People were looking at this and getting the full picture of every congressman and how what bills they sponsored. You cannot do that anymore. I'm not, you know, I have no idea who decided to take it down, but somebody did. You you can. It's, uh, it's you just know. a little more difficult. I, well, I'm looking right. at Max Bacchus right now. I've got 47 bills that that he sponsored up in front of me, but I'm also told that I have to go to another page to to find other to find other ones. Uh, so. Exactly. It, it, you, you used there. to be able to I'm go there, sure and you could see use them, uh, obviously. You could see his entire record from the minute he entered Congress right up to the present, in order, all laid out year session by session. You can't do that anymore. Anyway, we're Patrick, doing some so, funny music, and I'm not quite sure why. I guess we'll talk to you tomorrow. Well, no, there in this radio with Chuck and you Patrick. The key to well, it from I, I think there's something going search. wrong with our uh, our conference. Uh, oh, okay. In any case, um, for, for our, our listeners, that's uh, thomas.loc.gov. And if you want to see the, the legislative record of your member of Congress, you can go to Browse Bills by Sponsor, put in the name, and actually there's a drop-down box that allow you to do that, and then hit Go. And you're going to have to, to scroll through a lot of pages. It's not that easy to do, but it is there. Uh, laws online um, again you you have to join that in order to, uh, to to scroll but that also gives you supreme court rulings federal courts state codes etc so the information is out there it's just not easy to see and now we right, are and they should we should complain about that and they, we should demand that they make it easy for anyone to see anyone's record in its entirety in context <clears throat> i'm not sure what in context is well what i see here is in other words from bill. beginning to end without Selection. Just this is how they voted. These are the bills they sponsored, and what they are. That's all public record. That you cannot get that now. Uh, well, uh, whether we can or can't, uh, it's time for us to say goodbye because we're at about the end of hour two. I want to thank everybody for listening today, and make sure that you're here tomorrow. We're going to have a great show tomorrow. We're going to talk about for-profit colleges, and we're also going to look at the Prop 8 decision. So you've been listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and we're back same time tomorrow on CyberStationUSA.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and our terrestrial affiliate. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. And don't forget to stay tuned for Mike Siegel.